Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. Good morning, West Church family. I am so sorry that I cannot be there with you today. Uh, Thursday evening, Donna was feeling a little under the weather, and she woke up feeling worse on Friday. When she tested positive, I tested as well, and lo and behold, I have it too. Here was the weekend already. I'd done all of the work that I needed to do to be ready for today. And so the best plan that Rick and I could come up with is just to record it and share it with you this morning. I'm sorry that it has to be this way, and I'll do my very best to be back by next Sunday. You know, one of my favorite gifts this Christmas that I received was the gift of fresh fruit. In particular, fresh grapefruits. I love the sweetness and the tartness of a succulent grapefruit. I prefer to peel them and eat them like a giant orange, even though it's messy and sticky when I do that. And when I'm done, I sweep all the fruit into my waste paper basket in the office, and it still smells like grapefruit all day long. And it is a delightful experience. The Bible teaches us that our hearts can be and bear delicious fruit. That it's a spiritual life that dwells within us is a dynamic, it's not static. And whatever kind of spiritual energy that we have within us is gonna work its way out. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 and following, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You see, he said these kind of thoughts and actions are the fruit of a defiled life. The Apostle Paul spoke of the fruit of the Holy Spirit from the heart of the believer in Jesus. Character traits like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These kind of character traits are the fruit of a life that is being transformed by the Holy Spirit from within. So what kind of fruit are you bearing? If someone took a bite out of you, what would they taste and smell and see? Something rotten or something tasty? We're working our way through the book of Esther and our study is entitled, When God Seems Invisible. Because in the story of Esther, the name of God is never directly mentioned. Up until this point in the story, the plot has been building. Esther and her adoptive father, Mordecai, were Jews living in the capital city of the Persian Empire, the city of Susa. 
They kept their faith on the down low, knowing that they were not in friendly territory. Mordecai had a lower level government job and Esther, by a bizarre turn of events, becomes the queen of the Persian king Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Xerxes has a high advisor by the name of Haman. And as the king's ambitious high advisor, Haman takes once every single one of the king's subjects to bow down to him whenever he is passing by. As a Jewish man, this crosses the line for Mordecai, who refuses to bow down to Haman. And Haman takes this as a personal insult, and in his rage, delivers a decree to have all of the Jewish people throughout the entire empire of Persia killed, not just Mordecai. The Jewish people of God throughout the Persian empire are grieved and terrified. Mordecai tells the queen that now she must reveal herself in order to do something to overturn this deadly decree. But Esther's role as queen is merely for appearances. She has no genuine authority and she is afraid of her husband, the king. But she knows that she has to do something. So she tells Mordecai that she and her handmaids are gonna fast and pray for three days. Then she will attempt to approach the king. And that's where we left off last week. I want to talk for a moment about the ancient spiritual practice of fasting. It plays a very strong role in the Hebrew Bible as a way in which God's people seek him by refraining from food in times of deep need and in times of humble sorrow for their wrongs against God and their wrongs against other people. Jesus himself fasted and affirmed it as a practice for his followers. After Jesus fasted, he responded to the temptations of Satan by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. When we fast, we choose to abstain from food so that we may seek God with our entire being, body, soul, and spirit. It's been observed by Christians for centuries, but is perhaps less popular among us moderns. Perhaps there's something to learn there. Esther sought God with her handmaidens through fasting for three days. The entire city of Jewish believers sought God through fasting for three days. And we begin to see the results of the fruit of God's people seeking him today. Let me show the two things I want you to see today are the fruit of a heart seeking God and the fruit of a heart seeking self. The fruit of a heart seeking God and the fruit of a heart seeking self. We see the fruit of a heart seeking God in the life of Esther in verses one through eight. Now we mentioned last week that in the Persian Empire, no one had authority to approach the king in his palace unannounced, with the exception of the king's seven 
high counselors. Haman was one of those counselors. Esther was not. She could only approach the king when she was summoned, and she hadn't been summoned in over a month. If one tries to approach the king unannounced, the king may choose to welcome them by extending his golden scepter as a gesture of welcome. But if the king did not extend the golden scepter to the uninvited guest, then they would be executed. Esther's been fasting and praying for three days. She's no doubt afraid of this meeting. She puts on her royal robes and makes her approach. The king welcomes her and extends the scepter. She's made it this far. Not only that, he asks her what she wants and he makes this grandiose promise up to half of my kingdom. He repeats it again to her a little later in the story. You need to know that such an offer is a common flowery response. It is designed to emphasize the wealth of the king, not necessarily his overwhelming generosity. The same phrase is used by King Herod in the New Testament in Mark 6.22. Now, instead of coming right out with her concern, Esther knowing that she has some time, makes a modest request for Ahasuerus and Haman to attend a banquet that she has prepared for the two of them tomorrow. Esther is generous and measured in how she approaches him. He's flattered and sends for Haman immediately that night. After a bit of feasting and drinking wine, the king again asks Esther what she wants. And even then, she shows patience and restraint. Would you both please come to a second banquet that I'm going to have tomorrow? And then, then I'll share my request. Perhaps that was the plan. Perhaps she wanted to get to know her opponent. Perhaps she just had a check in her spirit about asking at that point. Whichever is the case, it's quite brilliant. Something about Esther is different. Perhaps her time with God fasting and praying had changed her. Esther had originally been instructed by Mordecai to keep her faith a secret. And she had done that, and there was a particular safety in that mistaken way of living. But when she has to reveal her faith to her powerful and dangerous husband, the king, she needs power from God to follow through. And she needs power from God to plead with him for her endangered people, Israel. She approaches the king, no doubt, with some fear, but also with humility and respect. She decides to engage the king and Haman with humility and with service. She doesn't rush to the punchline. She is composed well-mannered, and patient to get to her point. She displays a great deal of poise under pressure. I want to believe that her God, whom she has sought through fasting and prayer thus far, has guided her in her response to her need. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
As Christians, we believe that we have an actual, real-time relationship with God. We can go before him. We can seek after him. We can worship and adore him. We can ask him for what's on our hearts. We believe that he hears us and that he can modify who we are as we spend time with him. And he will help us with our deepest needs. God is a magnificent, tri-personal being. But through Jesus, he actually becomes our friend. He's not a vending machine that dispenses favors mechanically in response to our prayers. He is a person who delights in his children and finds immense pleasure when we delight in him. As the one who created us and who redeems us, he knows our needs even better than we know our needs ourselves. And having forgiven us through Jesus, he loves us with an eternal strength that can never be overthrown. He always hears and always wants to help in the way that a loving God could only help. God wants to transform us, and it's also his desire that we want to be transformed. A few years ago, a friend of mine who was in recovery from alcoholism was living for, with us for about a month. And every day, he and I would go to an AA meeting. And there would always be tons of helpful advice and several people who were willing to come alongside of him and function as his sponsor. The quality of the people that I met there was amazing. But I noticed that my friend started to withdraw into himself and he would not accept or request the help that was being offered to him. I knew he was in trouble, but I couldn't make him want the help that he needed, even though it was right in front of his face. He eventually relapsed and I've lost touch with him, unfortunately. God's transforming grace through his spirit really is right in front of our face. He is able to help us to change, but he's not like a fairy godmother who waves his wand over us so that poof, all our problems go away. He wants us to want him. He wants us to seek him. He's willing to give us what he has, but the seeking is part of the solution. Having pursued God through fasting and prayer with the support of her fasting and praying friends, Esther found that she need, what she needed in God to move towards this incredibly difficult situation. Her faith, was bearing fruit. Notice secondly with me the fruit of a heart-seeking self in the life of Haman in verses 8 through 14. 
Haman is overjoyed for the treat of being invited to Esther's special banquet with the king. But he's living, but as he's leaving the banquet, he notices Mordecai, who still refuses to bow down to him, and immediately Haman's joy melts into suppressed rage. Who can be joyful? when people like Mordecai don't show me the proper respect. The happiness of being honored by Esther is overcome by the rage of being dishonored by Mordecai. Haman is full of pride. If Mordecai will not bow down to him, his entire world smolders with anger. At home, Haman gathers his friends and his wife, and he starts recounting to them how wealthy he is. Why is he doing that? He celebrates how many sons he has fathered. What's that about? He talks about all of the promotions that he has received from the king. Why? The king has promoted him above all the others in the kingdom. Did his wife and friends not know this? that they needed to be told all over again? He explains the newest tidbit about he was invited to a private banquet with a king by the queen, and he's going there tomorrow. She must really think that he is someone special. Do you think that he's trying to compensate for something? (laughs) But Mordecai ruined it all. That Jewish man refuses to bow down when I walk by. How could he dare not bow down to someone as great as me? Haman has no pleasure in what he does have, only rage about a nobody who refuses him public reverence. He is consumed with pride and rage. His wife tells him to build a gallows and request Mordecai's life from the king. So he does. He builds a 50 cubit high gallows. That's 75 feet high in order to hang a six-foot man. His hatred for Mordecai is 75 feet tall and extends to anyone of the same race as Mordecai. But he doesn't know the queen is Jewish yet. Oh boy, that could change things. For all that he possesses, Haman can enjoy none of it because of what he feels he's not getting that he wants. It's eating him alive from the inside out. And sure enough, in our story, it's going to lead to his destruction. He's He's become hasty and careless in his pride. His whole life is corroding from the inside out. He's completely helpless to be happy about anything because he is too consumed on the inside with wanting people to believe that he is important. He's the second most powerful man in the empire, but inside he is a pouting child who wants what he can't have. The fruit coming out of his mouth confirms that his insides are rotten. In the Hebrew Bible book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 18, we read this. 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The hot nuclear core of our human sinful nature is pride. Not the normal pride in a job well done, but a turned in self that is consumed about what other people think of me and is never satisfied. A consumption to prove myself, a drivenness to be accepted and noticed, a defensiveness that prevents me from receiving any kind of constructive criticism. It is our pride that keeps us from trusting God, our pride that keeps us from asking for help, our pride that makes us impatient to get what we want, our pride that drives us to prove ourselves better, righter, richer, smarter, prettier, more upright, appearances everything, even if the insides are rotten. Pride is the poison spirit that led Eve to take the forbidden fruit. It is the contagious spiritual illness of self-worship that leads us to mistrust and defy God. Haman is a glaring example, but often pride is more subtle and insidious. I want what I want when I want it. Why would God ever deny me anything that I want? The proud heart believes that its desires are too pure to be wrong and that God is too small to tell me otherwise. Haman's pride is so obvious. It's almost funny. But in the church, pride is much more subtle and insidious. Judging gossip, critical spirit, envy, greed, lust, power plays, control, impatience, arguments, unforgiveness, fear of telling the truth. Pride is the source of all of these things. And it leads us to believe that these little sins are okay and acceptable, especially when you compare it to all the crazy out there. Consequently, we justify ourselves and we don't change, which can sometimes cause the atmosphere in the church to grow cold. And even though we use the word love, it's hollowed out and powerless. We can have faith, but still mistakenly center our lives around pride because we can become blind to it. Before we casually condemn Haman for his stupidity, we need to recognize that we are quite capable at much subtler acts of pride that do not please our Savior. In this section of the story today, Esther, in this passage, we see the contrast between the fruit of a heart seeking God 
over against the fruit of a heart-seeking self. Ultimately, it comes down to a question of who am I trusting, my Savior or myself? And how do we know the difference? When a person comes to Jesus for the very first time, they have a glimpse of their own shortcomings before God. They see their sin, they see their pride, they see their brokenness, they feel their shame. They see that about themselves, but they can also see for the first time clearly the cross of Jesus, that Jesus died for them. Jesus came through where I fell short and he can make, he can give me a whole new beginning now that lasts on into eternity because of his resurrection. He is more loving than we ever imagined. He cleans all the stains of my past. And when he comes into my life, he begins to rewrite my future. I see in Jesus all that I lack and all that I need. And I bow down before him and I say, thank you, Jesus, I need you so much. And it is my prayer that every single one of you have had a genuine come to Jesus moment experience in your life. If you have not, it's not too late to come today. At the very least, continue to come to worship so that you may understand what it truly means to have a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. For others of us here, however, that first time experience of God's grace was a long time ago. And we're not the people that we were then. And yet, with humbled hearts, we still notice the subtle roots of pride in our lives in so many unlovely ways. Was that initial faith experience real? Or was it just youthful optimism in God? As we walk the road of life with Jesus, what we find is that he is so gracious and so forgiving. And also we find that there are still outcroppings of pride within us. And what changes in our walk with Jesus is this. When we first came to Christ, we saw what Jesus did on the cross as being so big and we gratefully embraced it. But in our experience of battling pride, what we come to find is that what Jesus did is even bigger than we thought we needed at the very beginning. The cross is large enough for today's sin and shame. How powerful and gracious and forgiving Jesus is expands our hearts and our minds and our understanding of how much he did for us. We need him now 
even more than we recognized at the start. And what we find is that he is more and his love and his grace continue to change our hearts. And even as we approach God today in the communion, allow the fullness of what Jesus did to wash over you again, believing that his cross is big enough for today's pride. God bless you, and thank you for being here today.